Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist writer and quite convicted writer of this Lent series on the vices and the virtues. Last week, we discussed pride and humility, and this week is about envy and love. Envy has been defined from ancient times as varying forms of sorrow um, from another person's prosperity and joy in their downfall. There's really no way to spin that one. (laughs) In other words, it's the mere opposite of weeping when others weep and rejoicing when others rejoice. The word sorrow might throw you off a bit here, but it means that genuine discomfort, irritation, mournful and malicious comparison of yourself in relation to someone else's life, success, possessions, gifts, looks, whatever it is. It's like the feeling you get of shameful happiness when they lose that thing you envy or when life is hard for them. It's embarrassing, impotent. Envy so obviously emerges from our nastiest thoughts and feelings. Chaucer writes in the Canterbury Tales, following a long tradition, that all sins have some level of delight in them, except for envy. And what's really funny is that I actually just read an article in The Atlantic uh, last week that said the same thing, and I said, oh, it continues. Chaucer, The Atlantic. But you think of the smugness of pride or the deliciousness of being furious and reveling in that righteous indignation or the very obvious pleasures of lust or gluttony. Envy alone has no salty savor to it. We often use envy and jealousy interchangeably, but they're quite different, really. Jealousy entails guarding sedulously what you feel like you um, already possess. So um, a jealous partner, for instance, guards their boyfriend or girlfriend possessively and usually wrongly because they're treating them like a possession. Um, God is described as a jealous God in the Hebrew scriptures because Israel belongs to him and he looks after it zealously. Envy, on the other hand, entails something you do not have, but you desire, and it extends beyond mere covetousness into the personal. Again, uh, Rebecca Conanduct Young, in her excellent book, um, in The Glittering Vices, in her chapter on envy, she notes that while the covetous person's desires focus on having an object for herself, the envious person is at least as concerned with the rival's status or good standing as a result of having that object. The covetous person delights in acquiring the thing, while the envier delights in the way the redistribution of goods affects her and her rival's respective positions. So, you might consider the difference between someone buying nice shoes because they saw someone else wearing them and wanted them for themselves, to someone buying nice shoes because they're a brand that's more obviously expensive than the brand that their friend wears. Envy is ever joined to the comparing of a man's self and where there is no comparison, no envy, writes Francis Bacon. Last week, we discussed pride and comparison. But 
pride takes joy in comparison. It revels in the prideful one's superiority. Envy, again, always falls short. De Young says, because of what they lack, enviers feel less admirable and less worthy of love. And she uses the helpful example of Mozart and Salieri in the great film Amadeus. Salieri is eaten alive by his envy of Mozart, and he causes harm to Mozart whenever he can, um, which also morphs into his own violent form of self-hatred. Another medieval penitential manual notes that envy is seldom confessed to friends or spiritual advisors. Envy is embarrassing. We hide it. We cloak it in other more reasonable emotions or rationales. This is probably because it hits too close to home. Envy is closely wrapped up in our deepest personal discontents about our lives, our most profound insecurities about ourselves. So how does envy reach the light of day? These medieval penitential manuals have super long lists, extensive lists of envious behavior. Envy proceeds along a well-worn human path, certain ways of speaking, bitterness of heart, unbinding of friendships, sowing of discord, scorn, accusations, putting impediments in the way of those who wish to do right, and finally, concrete acts of malignity like property damage, public slander, or murder. That unbinding of friendship one is huge. That's the context that the Atlantic one that I had referenced earlier um, uses it in. It mused on how destructive envy is in our already rare and fragile adult friendships. For most of us, um, rarely do things progress so far in our envy that we burn down our rivals' houses, steal the boyfriend or car that we want, or murder though these things are known to the envious. Instead, for most folks, envy surfaces in the way that we talk about other people when they're not around. What medieval writers labeled in a wonderful triad of envious language, backbiting, gretching, and murmuration. Jacob's Well compares the language of the envious person to a hound, The hound cringes before the envious person when the hound is within sight and then bites them once their back is turned. Chaucer, in his Parson's Tale, has a great passage on backbiting. Some man praiseth his neighbor by wicked intent, for he maketh always a wicked knot at least end. Always he maketh a but at last end. That is worthy of more blame than is worth all the praising. The second species is that if a man be good and doeth or saith a thing to good intent, the backbiter will turn all that goodness upside down to his malicious intent. The third is to reduce the bounty of his neighbor. The fourth species is if men speak goodness of such man, then will the backbiter say, by my faith, this man is yet better than he in dispraising of the man that men praised. The fifth space is this, for to consent gladly and hearken gladly to the harm that men speak of other folk. Chaucer's list makes me both laugh and cringe. I've seen these things happen in conversation. 
I've especially seen politicians and public figures use these tactics. Most sadly, I've used them myself. The wicked knot at the end of the sentence, or silently reveling as others criticize. That's a nice one, because I don't have to get my hands dirty. Ouch. I recognize envy in my own life when I want something not to work out for a friend, acquaintance, even a random person online, merely because I wish it were happening to me. If it's not me, they better not be able to have it or do it either. I recognize my envy in mostly really silly objects, a vacation abroad or a success in writing in my particular field. How dare you receive recognition, too, for writing about Julian of Norwich, the greatest English mystical writer. I have scarcely disguised satisfaction when somebody else argues with someone I, too, argue with. These examples might lead you to notice, as the medieval writers recognize, that envy makes you really dumb. (laughs) Your judgment sours. You begrudge things that are ridiculous. As it turns out, envy is far less about those people than it is, in the end, about myself. De Young writes, Spite at the unworthiness of the rival also works to distract from and disguise the envier's own sense of unworthiness. The commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The envier can do neither. In my envy, I disguise my real feelings. Real sadness over not having the income or freedom as a parent of young children to travel like I long to. Real insecurity over my skills as a writer. Real doubt that I will ever succeed as I wish to succeed. Real worries that I'm not as right as I think I am. It's easier to lash out at the other person than to deal with my own feelings and fears, and perhaps the truth. It's easier to feel I've been cheated of what's rightfully mine and not theirs. Okay, have we piled on enough yet? (laughs) On to the remedy. Unsurprisingly, love is the remedy. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In the case of envy, both neighbor love and self-love are either non-existent or severely lacking. In the Parsons' tale, Chaucer writes, First is the love of God principle and loving of his neighbor as himself, for truthfully, one cannot be without the other. Our medieval friends do not mince words about who our neighbor is. Again, from the Parson. Also in the love of neighbor is comprehended thy enemy. Certes, certainly, our enemies have more need of love than our friends. In that same deed, have we remembrance of the love of Jesus Christ that died for his enemies. For right is the devil is discomfited by humility. Right so is he wounded to the death by love of our enemy. This love, medieval writers tell us, is tender-hearted. It weeps when others weep. It rejoices when they rejoice, rather than the twisted opposition of envy. It's soft-hearted and helpful. 
It's truly the love of 1 Corinthians 13. The Book of Vices and Virtues and Jacob's Well, both penitential manuals from a similar source, use a beautiful but challenging extended metaphor from Scripture that we're all members of Christ's body. Envy is foolish because we are common in His image and likeness. We've all been baptized in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This body imagery does a lot of heavy lifting. (laughs) Do you like that pun there? (laughs) Cultivating love for self and neighbor through our shared identity as beloved and in the process of sanctification. Then should we much love each other that God loveth and praiseth so much and maketh so worthy, says the book. It also says that in the body, the good and wise forbear the foolish and the feeble, right as bones beareth the tender flesh. We're not all bones, winkingly says the book. The quality is forbearance, that particular kind of patience and compassion for your neighbor that you often also need to ask for, for yourself. Similarly, there's a bodily love and mutuality that the book identifies in identifying your neighbor rather than tearing him down. When a foot stumbleth or slideth, the other helpeth it anon. When someone tries to smite the head, the hand intervenes and takes the blow instead. We're all rightful members of the body. And when a person is healthy, we know in our real bodies, such actions are reflexive and natural. You catch yourself when you fall. You block a blow to your more sensitive parts. You um, balance yourself with both feet, right? This metaphor is really interesting and challenging. But as we all know, it's nearly impossible to just look at someone you envy and go, all right, guess I'll love them now. The old habits remain So one has to tear down those old habits. One of the misperceptions of labeling vices and then particular virtues as their remedies means that we may imagine love as fixing our envy problem, which it does in the long run because of the nature of love itself. But the analogy of a remedy is descriptive rather than proscriptive. Talking about it does not make it so. Cool. How do I get to that reflexive point of protecting the wounded foot instead of smirking when the toe gets stubbed because I wanted its shoes for myself? How can I begin to love instead of envy? Jacob Swell tells a story about the envious man who is out in a figurative storm, desperately searching for shelter. He wanders towards a little cottage with a light in the window, knocks and begs to be let in. He discovers it's the house of righteousness, and righteousness refuses to let him in because, quite frankly, he's not righteous. He gets to another house that looks so warm and cozy, a shelter from the ravages of the storm of envy. It's Truth's house. But truth refuses to let him in because he has not been telling the truth about himself, his own desires, and especially about the person he envies. He wanders on, growing wearier and frightened. He gets to the house of peace, 
Surely peace will take him in. But peace sees his inner turmoil and refuses. But peace does offer him a word. Go to the house of mercy. She will take you in and give you shelter. And the man wanders off and finally comes upon mercy's cottage. And she lets him in, even in his state of raging envy and untruth. When we're wrestling with the heavy burden of envy, we must seek out the house of mercy, and only God's mercy can teach us how to love or practice any virtue for that matter. Charity is the unit of fire, the bright kindling that allows us to warm one another and ourselves. But because love or friendship, as many of the manuals define love, is so difficult to do well, And truthfully, we especially need the aid of mercy. The manuals suggest prayer, especially reading the penitential psalms on a regular basis to help reach out for that mercy. And the penitential songs are Psalms 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. And by the way, if you're curious, these were used um, all the time in medieval prayer. They appear um, in the prayer books of the period at great frequency and were a popular tool for this kind of cultivation of reaching out for mercy. Also, um, I have quoted Jacob's Well approvingly a lot in this episode, which is actually really crazy because that penitential book is off the rails bonkers. I do not recommend you hearing this and going, oh, that sounds really cool. I'm going to go pick it up. Um, It's really nuts. And it was just really good on Envy, actually. Um, And you should also be proud of me because last week I resisted sharing an absolutely disgusting humility anecdote from that very book. So you didn't have to hear about it, which is great. Back to Envy. DeYoung um, herself offers some ideas in Glittering Vices. One is to avoid comparison entirely by doing secret acts of love, either things that are too small and insignificant to be noticed by anyone or uh, not ever telling your sort of larger good deeds. She notes that the envier needs to learn what it feels like to do something good for another without her usual frame of reference in which her performance will be noted tallied up and made the basis of a comparison between persons. She also suggests that the envious person seek out non-competitive activities with others that are mutually beneficial, like listening to music, taking a walk, looking at art, going to museums. These acts that saturate one with beauty and companionship are good antidotes to envy good beginnings to seeing someone beyond the threat that they pose to your identity. I think on a really practical level, and one that I've been thinking about a lot, is um, watching your tongue. Because the tongue is so often where envy reveals itself. How do I speak of others, especially online? Criticism is necessary and a really useful tool at times, but do I take pleasure in it? And if I do, what kind? Interrogate your motives when you speak ill of others, even if you're simply repeating someone else. 
As someone who struggled with envy at times, I know a good help for me personally. Recognizing and smiling at my own beloved absurdity nips envy in the bud. Envy, like pride or next week's discussion, wrath, is very serious. It doesn't like to be laughed at. But when I begin to feel the familiar malice of envy, the listless irritation, the delight in hearing someone slammed or mocked or criticized in conversation, I know I need to laugh at myself. St. Francis of Assisi famously called his body brother ass. And while in the proper medieval spirit, he was definitely too severe on his body, I think he had a really good idea. Saying with love to yourself, you little ass, not asshole, no abusive language here, just a stubborn, unspiritual little donkey, frees us from the utter seriousness we often impose upon ourselves in our times of vice. It's also easy once you get in the habit of recognizing it, because humility truly is often ridiculous and funny. I don't own traveling to Europe or Julian of Norwich. Why begrudge them, sister ass? I still want to go to Europe, but I also feel freer when I identify these things and laugh at them. Ultimately, the envious person needs a reframing of their identity and from whence their value comes. The envious person also needs the reminder of humility of last week blended with the love of this week. As humans, we're unconditionally loved. We're also naturally little and limited. And the Lord looks upon our creation and loves us as we are. It's good to remind ourselves of this, our deepest core identity. Thanks for listening, friends. Next week, we'll consider wrath and its variety of remedies. That's right. Wrath has a lot of different options. Apparently, we struggle with wrath and have to think about it. If you'd like to see more of what I'm up to, sign up for my free monthly Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. I'm also around on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD and Instagram at Old Books with Grace. And I'd love to hear from you on both of these platforms what you thought about this episode, if you have any thoughts about envy or love, um, any of those things, I would be so curious to hear your thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really, really appreciate it if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed on the platform of your choice. It helps other listeners find the podcast, and it helps me out a lot too. Thanks again for listening.